Amen. We believe. The point of Hebrews chapter 13, verses 12 and 13, what we just read, the command is loud and clear. Christians move towards need, not comfort. Let me say it again. I talk a little fast. Hebrews 13, verses 12 and 13, the passages we're going to be looking at this morning. It's very loud. It's very clear that Christians, Christ followers, move towards need, not comfort. If you want to begin turning your Bible to Hebrews 13, so you can look at those two verses yourself, you read it in its context. While you turn there, tell you a little story. A couple of you know that my family had a family emergency a couple weeks ago, had to fly out to Oklahoma to spend some time with them. And I love my family, but I love being here. I love being with all of you, this community, Vero Beach. Love being with my wife and my baby Arlo. I just love it. And so, uh, me and Arlo have this special bond. Every morning we go for a walk, we'll, and, and so I, I come back, and we're reuniting and wrestling in the living room. He's six months old, so I won, obviously. Okay, it's all right. We're wrestling in the living room, but Arlo came with a little surprise whenever I got back. See, my wife failed to tell me that while I was gone, Arlo's first teeth began poking through, and what a surprise it was. Whenever I found that out for the first time, as he latched onto one of my fingers, and it felt like a little bear trap around my hand. Now, I know where the danger zone is. Like, I know where it's at. And I'll come up when our wrestling matches, I'll come up to play with him, and he's like looking all around for where I'm at, and I'm just trying to stay away from the mouth. You know who I feel like. This is what I feel like every time. <laughs> This is what I feel like. I mean, I know where the danger zone is. And this morning, we're going to be talking about going to dangerous places much more extreme than Arlo's little chompers that he has. You see, the central call to us in verse 13, verse 13 of Hebrews 13, let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. That is, let us move with Jesus towards need, not comfort. Now, that command is based off of what happens in verse 12. This is verse 12 and 13 broken up for you. The first two lines are verse 12. I've just broken them up by its movement. Verse 13 stands on its own. So, what happens? Why? What did Jesus accomplish by going outside the gate? He, line two, in order to sanctify his people, to make them right, to save them, to cleanse them before God. He sanctified his people. People. How did he do it? He went outside and suffered outside the gate. Line number one. That's verse 12. Now the question we have, looking at what Jesus did, therefore our response is verse 13. Therefore let us go outside the camp or outside our own gate and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, he says Christians join Jesus in his suffering. Because of what Jesus did and because of his suffering outside the gate, I too must move outside the gate of security, of familiarity, of ease, and be willing to take that reproach with him. And because of what Jesus did outside the gate, he sanctified us. Whenever we move outside of the gate, whenever we move towards need and not comfort, we are doing it not by our own strength. We're doing it not by our own virtue. We're not even doing it by an act of um, Imitation, I almost said whatever, imitation, we're not imitating him. Because all that is, is an act of heroism. 
I go out moving towards need, not comfort, and I'm going to do it by my own strength, by my own virtue, and we're not taking part in what Jesus did when he went before us, tapping into the power that Christ released inside of us by giving his life first, by setting the example. It's not an act of heroism moving towards need instead of comfort, because that gives glory to you, not glory to Christ. But the main point is this. As Christ followers, as a Christian, with a Savior like this, our response is to move towards need, not comfort. Now, I understand that that exhortation moving towards need, not comfort, can be taken out of context. It can be distorted in different ways. And I'm about to give you some broad stroke examples of how this might be distorted. And your responsibility is going to be to narrow it down to what it looks like in your life. I'm going to give you examples on a big scale. You've got to narrow it down. And what does this look like for me? So what, what are some ways that this can be distorted? Well, imagine a, a single woman looking to be married and she might say, well, I need to find me a man who's needy and, and, and his life is turned upside down because whenever I get into a relationship, whenever I marry him, I can turn him around for good. I can kind of pick up that project. Or a young professional, let's say he's going into computer business and he says, I need to look for a job that's weak, a company that's weak, and I'm going to be hired in and I'm going to help turn it upside down to right side up. I'm going to help turn this company around. Or let's go to a far more practical example. Your car breaks down. You need to take it to a mechanic. You have all different options to take it to here in Vero Beach. A small little town has more mechanic shops than it needs. You have all of these options, and you say, well, I'm going to take it to uh, the mechanic who's incompetent. His business is falling under, but I'm moving towards need, not comfort, and I'm going to help give him a little bit of business. See, the problem with all of these is we're not asking the right questions. You see, moving outside the camp with Jesus requires us to ask a completely different set of questions, to approach it in a completely different way, because the examples I gave you, they're not radical decisions for Jesus. These are foolish decisions. So asking a different set of questions might be, for the single woman, why should you even assume you should be married? Now that's a different question. Maybe the call of Jesus to move towards need, not comfort, is to be utterly devoted to singleness for the sake of a greater service. Or the young professional who wants to get hired in a corporate job in America to help turn it around. Why should you even assume you should be looking for a job in America, weak or strong, when there are similar jobs available in countries that hardly know Christ? Or for the car situation, the mechanic, why should you even assume you should have a car? Maybe you should move to a country where they don't, people don't drive cars because there's not any roads there and there's barely any buildings and there's certainly no churches or Christ followers. You see, moving outside the camp means asking a different set of questions. To go outside the camp, to bear reproach with him. And here's the crazy thing about it, but the reality of it is it's easy to caricature that situation of going outside the camp. It's easy to make it look foolish and that's the easiest way out. That's the easiest way not to live into what we've been called to do. Because it makes us look clever and it makes following Jesus look inept. Like we're clever, like be single for my life. What, what are you talking about not get married? Absolutely not. I would never do that. 
not have a car, move to a different country, leave my job and move out of the country? There's no way. I have way too many things to protect here. That's way too foolish. No, I'm good. I'm good where I'm at. I'll just work within my confines. Going outside the camp, it frees you. You know, frees you. You don't have to worry about it. Make yourself look clever, at least for a few more deluded years. To continue to go on in the way of an empty, shallow, comfort-seeking routine that some people here call a life. Jesus doesn't want that for you. It's not the role or the model that Jesus gave us. He died outside the gate. He died outside the seeming comforts of security, of comfort, of familiarity, the holy city of Jerusalem. He died outside the gate on a hill called Golgotha, willingly, sacrificially, lovingly. And why did he die? Look at verse 13 again. He died to sanctify his people, to make us different from the rest of the world, to make us holy and loving and radical and risk-taking and to be utterly captivated by a different destiny than this world has to offer us. That's why he did it. I want to give you the bottom line of this message. We're talking about being the whole disciple. What does that mean? What does it mean to be fully a follower of Jesus? So far, Tracy has broken down what it means to think biblically. Whenever you can think whatever you want in a world of free thought, what does it mean to think biblically within that world? What does it mean to have godly character in a world where character matters more than anything else? where it's the most needed thing, but it's one of the most rare things to find, godly character. What does it mean to be a good steward, to change our perspective of the ways we've been blessed in our resources? And today, we're talking about what does it mean to live missionally, to live missionally. And I want to give you the bottom line. This is the whole lesson summed up in one sentence. If you know, if you heard me preach before, you know I like to do this at the beginning, gives you something to write down if you're taking notes, gives you something to chew on while we go through the rest of this lesson. It gives you something to talk about whenever you go to lunch today. Hey, am I doing this? Am I not doing this? How can we do this better? Here it is. You ready? To live missionally means our default mode as those who have access to the gospel should be to move towards those who do not have the gospel. Let me say it again. To live missionally means that our default mode as those who have access to the gospel should be to move towards those who do not have the gospel. What I want to do this morning is I want to help show you what it looks like to live missionally. What does it practically look like? Whenever you leave here today, what can you do to live into being a whole disciple in this aspect of living missionally? And the way I want to do that is through story, through stories. And the reason I want to do it that way is because we are very, a very story-driven society, and I would even say humanity is story-driven. Our entire life happens within the context of a story. Your life is your story being played out over the years. Your experiences are many stories. The way we take in information and share information is usually in the context of stories. And absolutely, the way that you are going to live missionally in this world is through stories. 
And so, this morning, here's what I want to do with you. I want to tell you four stories. Two of the stories are true stories of individuals, two individuals that are absolutely remarkable and lived out what it means to live missionally. The next story is a far more practical and familiar story of how people in this church are living missionally. And then I want to close us out with a parable. A parable. Not true, but I believe it captures everything that we are talking about. Two true stories, a story that's far more personal, and a parable. Y'all good for that? Does that sound okay? Okay, let's tell some stories. The first story is of a man named Adoniram Judson. What a name, huh? Adoniram Judson, who lived from 1788 to 1850. He was a missionary in Burma for 40 years of his life. He gave to the mission field. Now, Adoniram did, he was and is a remarkable person. Uh, He had a phenomenal life that's uh, humbling, it's inspiring, it will get you fired up. If you haven't heard of Adoniram Judson, go look him up. Look at what he did for those 40 years on the mission field. But one of the most remarkable things Adoniram did happened before he even left for the mission field. And it was whenever he met his wife, Anne. He had only known her for about a month, but he knew he wanted to marry her. So Adoniram found himself in an interesting place. He wanted to marry this woman named Anne, but he knew where his life was headed. He knew he was going to the mission field. He knew the dangers and the risk that involved. So Adoniram wrote a letter. He wrote a letter to Anne's father, both asking her, him for her hand in marriage, but also revealing the realities of the life that he was welcoming, welcoming her into. And I want to read you a part of that letter this morning. Here's what Adoniram Judson wrote to Anne's father. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land, and her subjugation to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, to insult, to persecution, and perhaps to a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all of this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory? with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Fathers, imagine getting that letter. Adoniram Judson's letter to Mr. Hasseltine was fulfilled and did go through many hardships on the mission field. She experienced three pregnancies, the first ending in a miscarriage while moving from India to Burma 
during one of their passages. Her second child, Roger, was born in 1850. He died eight months later. And his, her third child, Maria, only lived six months after Anne herself died in 1826 of smallpox. Adoniram Judson himself and his life lost two wives and six of his 13 children on the mission field. Anne and Adoniram suffered many trials, Anne herself not immune to them, but living out what Judson wrote for the sake of him who left his heavenly home. They left their homes and their family to spread the glory of God to an unreached people group. Was it worth it? Ultimately, their sacrifice was worth it. But Judson would never see the reality of that. Judson, in his 18 years of being in Burma, he only saw 18 people convert to Christ. But if only a few years after his death, there were over 100 churches and 8,000 believers that could be found in Burma. Today, you can see the fruits of his work and that there's 2.5 million evangelical Christians in Burma today. The bottom line, hundreds of thousands of Christians today are in this world risking their lives to be Christian this morning. And if you're familiar with Revelation chapter 5, verse 11, the reason Christ went outside the gate, the reason he suffered outside the comforts of his life was to redeem people from every tribe and every tongue and every people and every nation. So what does it mean for us to move outside the comfortable gate of Bethlehem? What does it mean to move outside the comfortable place of Vero Beach? What does it mean to move outside the comfortable state of our secure job? We look at Adoniram Judson as an example of what it means to move towards Jesus on the road towards need, not comfort. Time magazine called this man, Nicholas Bingu, the Billy Graham of Africa, The reason they called him that was because he reached more Africans with the gospel than any other man in history up to this date has. And so there was an interview towards the end of Nicholas's life. The interviewer is asking him about this this awesome title of the Billy Graham of Africa, of reaching so many people. And Nicholas, he turns to the guy giving the interview and is like, I want to tell you a different story. I want to tell you the story of a young couple, a missionary couple that went to Africa one year super excited, really felt called to minister in Africa, but they just weren't that good at it. They preached, nobody came. And the mission board that was supporting their mission was getting peeved because they had nothing to report. Years and years of preaching and not a single conversion. They, they built a church, nobody came to it. In fact, the funny thing is, is that they spent years of their life ministering to people in Africa, and the only person that came to any of their events was a little kid that carried their bags from village to village. That's the only person that they actually reached in their time. They spent the most of their adult life preaching and getting no response. And finally, the denominational headquarters, they said, guys, we got to call you back. This is humiliating. It's embarrassing. You're using our resources. It was a mistake. Come home. Now, this was the time whenever you had to get on a ship to travel to a different continent across the sea. And so they loaded up their boat, and after spending the most of their adult life in ministry, they left, and the only person that came to see them off was that little kid. I think he carried their bags to the ship for them as they headed back to the States. They were so embarrassed, humiliated, 
And it wasn't but a few years after returning to the States that they both passed away, absolutely convinced that they were complete failures. And it's at that point in the interview that Nicholas looks up to the guy asking the question. He says, but what they didn't know is that I was that little kid. God didn't send them to reach a thousand people. He didn't send them to reach a hundred people. He didn't even send them to reach ten people. God sent them to Africa to reach me. And because of that, I've been able to reach more Africans than any other man in history. The bottom line, the purpose of living missionally is not to live under the shade of the trees that we plant. The purpose of living missionally is to plant the seeds. To plant the seeds. You may never see the fruits of your labor, but living missionally is not a means to an end. It is the end. Christ suffered outside the gate. So what does verse 13 say? Therefore, I go outside the gate to endure the burden, the blame, the shame, the disgrace endured for the sake of the gospel. We plant seeds. Even if it means we're standing in the scorching heat, we plant seeds, imagining a day that a forest is going to emerge from the seeds that we plant, but it doesn't matter, we plant the seeds. Let's talk about a more personal story with this church. A couple weeks ago, our church had an ice cream social. We listened to a man named Jeff Smith come and talk about an organization that he helps run called Disciple Trips. Disciple Trips. It's a mission organization. Now, this church has sent many people on the mission field through Disciple Trips. Some of the most recent ones are these young adults right here. We have Troy Wiley, Sasha Chisholm, and Deja Miller up here. Awesome, awesome stories. And some of you have heard some of their stories, and even the one I'm about to tell you, but man, is it worth repeating. So there was a trip. I believe it was Troy and Sasha went on together. And they were both given this incredible opportunity to see people who live in a different culture, to experience different worldviews. But one thing that Disciple Trips does, which is awesome, is they teach the people going how to share Jesus. Man, what a tool to be able to share Jesus. And while Troy and Sasha did a lot for Antigua and in Antigua over the years, one of the greatest impacts that both of them would have, but it began with Troy, happened back here in the States. You see, Troy took this method of sharing Jesus, and he shared Jesus with Deja Miller. Now, this brought Deja to make her own decision to follow Jesus, to make her own decision to go outside the camp where Jesus was going onto the mission field, and to use the same methods that she were used against her to share Jesus with other people. And today, you can follow these three along. They're all here this morning. Sasha has been on mission opportunities since then. She's gone and done wonderful things in this church and in this community. Troy, he is engaged to be married to a wonderful Elizabeth. And I can only imagine the impact that you two are going to have on God's kingdom over the years. And Deja has gone on to be engaged to be married to an awesome Christian man. And the same thing with y'all's marriage. But the story doesn't end there. You see, that was just part of the thread, but going with just Deja's story, she took those methods and what was done for her, and she began sharing Jesus and using these methods in her circles, bringing people closer to Jesus. And now today, a young lady is sitting next to her, Nev. 
Nev has been coming to our young adults for about a year and a half now. She's been coming here for six, seven, eight months. And Nev brings her little two-year-old daughter every once in a while. And now she's immersed, but it doesn't stop there. You see how this happens? Now Nev, empowered by what she sees, what she's witnessed, falling in love with Jesus a little more, taking the same methods of inviting people towards Jesus, she was invited, and now she is inviting, and she has brought her friend Nick. And if you've asked Nick himself, he's not a believer. He has a faith, but it is weak. He has a faith, but he doesn't know where to go with it. But he comes. Every single week, Nick is at our young adult gathering. He's even been sitting in this room before on Sunday morning with us a couple of Sundays. It's all because if you follow the thread back up, all of those threads come from the source of a young man who lived out his default mode as somebody who has access to the gospel to move towards those who do not have the gospel. Now I give you permission to allow your imagination to run rampant for just a moment. Imagine the tidal wave effect that this church could have in our neighborhoods, in this community, in our state, in our country, if all of us lived missionally every day. With the mammoth needs of a world without Christ in front of us and the glory of Christ in us, we all face two options this morning. Option number one, we can retreat from the mission into a land of religious formalism and wasted opportunity. Or option number two, we can risk everything to fulfill the divine purpose for which we have been created. In church, I say we risk it all. For the sake of billions of people in this world who haven't heard the name of Jesus, I say we risk it all. For the millions of people in our country who are headed towards a Christless eternity, I say we risk it all. For the sake of lost people that you know in your jobs, in your neighborhoods, in your community, I say we risk it all. For the sake of our lives and our families, of our churches and of our children's lives, I say we risk it all. Let me remind you what the author of Hebrew is saying because it's very clear that Jesus goes to the dirty places. He goes to the dangerous places. He goes to the despised places and we go to him. We move towards need, not comfort. We don't sit within comfort hoping one day Jesus will come back into the camp, but we go to him. We go to the knee. This is dying to comfort. This is dying to self. We go to the dirty. We go to the despised. We go to the dangerous. And we do this because we are convinced that the glory of Christ is worth it. So we're outside the camp. We go. Say we go. What does this look like? What does this practically look like for you? And there's all kinds of opportunities. Nationwide, nation, uh, worldwide, community, there's mission opportunities all over this community to serve. What I want to do as I prepared my thoughts is I just jotted down a couple of things connected just to this church of how you can begin living missionally today. Perhaps that road leads you to inquire about a mission trip, maybe through an organization like Disciple Trips. Maybe you want to experience something like that. Maybe you want to learn what it means to tell people and teach people about Jesus. 
we have made a goal for the year 2022. We are talking to Jeff Smith, and this church is going to sponsor a trip that anybody in this church is welcome to go on. We're going to go internationally on the mission field. And if you're here this morning, you're like, maybe that's something I need. Don't write me down in permanent, but I'm going to inquire about it. Come talk to us. Maybe your road, though, is to get more involved in this church. Not waiting for somebody to come to you to ask you to help, but implementing and pushing yourself to serve in whatever way you see is a need. Maybe it's serving in kids' church or helping with the youth or helping with one of the many ministries that we support, like Youth for Christ, like CareNet, or like Buggy Bunch. There's a sign-up sheet serving over 5,000 people in our upcoming pumpkin patch, and you could be present, being Jesus in that community. Maybe the road outside the camp for you looks like inquiring about our online ministry. Some of you are like, well, that's not for me. You don't want me on that. Well, maybe I do. Maybe I'm just waiting for you to ask me, how can I get involved? What does it look like? What can I do? How can I help? This is the new mission field, is the internet. Are we there? Maybe your road is outside the campus to a neighbor who's perishing in unbelief. Maybe it's to your phone to make a hard phone call to a straying friend. I don't know what your road is. But I hope by the end of today, you do. One more story to close us out. It's a parable. It's not a parable you'll find in your Bible, but it's a powerful parable that I came upon. Someone told it to me, and I think it does a good job of bringing together everything that we're talking about this morning. So the story, it concerns, it's called the rabbi's gift. It concerns a monastery that had fallen on hard times. Once a great order, as a result of waves of anti-monastic persecution in the 17th and 18th century, with the rise of secularism in the 19th century, all of its branch houses were lost. It became decimated to the extent that there was only five monks left in the decaying mother house, abbot and four others, all of them over the age of 70. Clearly, it was a dying order. Now, deep in the woods, surrounding the monastery, there was a little hut that a rabbi from a nearby town occasionally used. Now, through many years of prayer and getting to know this rabbi, the monks knew when the rabbi was in the woods, the rabbi's in the woods, the rabbi's in the woods, once again, they would whisper. And as he agonized over the imminent death of his order, it occurred to the abbot at one such time to visit the hut and to ask the rabbi if by some possible chance he could offer any advice that might save the monastery. The rabbi welcomed the abbot into his hut, and when the abbot explained the purpose of his visit, the rabbi could only commiserate with him. I know how it is, he explained. The spirit, it's gone out of the people. It's the same in my town. Almost nobody comes to synagogue anymore. So the old abbot and the old rabbi, they wept together. And they read parts of the Torah and they quietly spoke of deep things. Now the time came when the abbot had to leave. They embraced each other. It has been a wonderful thing that we should meet after all of these years, the abbot said. But I have failed in my purpose for coming here. Is there nothing you can tell me? No piece of advice that you can give me that would save my dying order. 
No, I'm sorry, said the rabbi. I have no advice to give. The only thing I can tell you is that the Messiah is one of you. When the abbot returned to the monastery, his fellow monks gathered around him to ask, well, what what did the rabbi have to say? He couldn't help, the abbot answered. We just wept and read the Torah together. The only thing he did say, just as I was leaving, it was something cryptic. It was that the Messiah was one of us. I don't know what it meant. In the days and weeks and months that followed, the old monks, they pondered this, wondered whether there was any possible significance to the rabbi's words. The Messiah is one of us? Could he possibly have meant one of us monks here at the monastery? If that's the case, which one? Do you suppose he meant Abbot? Yeah, surely he meant, if anybody, it was probably Father Abbot. He's been our leader for more than a generation. On the other hand, he might have meant Brother Thomas. Certainly Brother Thomas is a holy man. Everybody knows that Brother Thomas is a man of light. Certainly he could not have meant Brother Elred. Elred gets crotchety at times. But come to think of it, even though he is a thorn in people's sides, when you look back on it, Elred is virtually always right. Often really very right. Maybe the rabbi did mean Brother Elred, but surely not Brother Philip. Philip is so passive. He's a real nobody. But then, almost mysteriously, he has a gift for somehow always being there when you need him. He just magically appears by your side, it seems. Maybe Philip is the Messiah. Of course, rabbi didn't mean me. He couldn't possibly have meant me. I'm just an ordinary person. Yet supposing he did, suppose I'm the Messiah. Oh God, not me. I couldn't be that much for you, could I? And as they contemplated this manner, the old monks, they began to treat each other with extraordinary respect in the off chance that one of them might be the Messiah. And on the off, off chance that each monk himself might be the Messiah, they began to treat themselves with extraordinary respect. And because the forest in which it was situated was beautiful, it so happened that people still occasionally came to visit the monastery, you know, to picnic on its lawn, to wander along some of its path, maybe even to go into the dilapidated chapel to meditate. And as they did so, without even being conscious of it, they sensed this aura of extraordinary respect that now began to surround the five old monks that seemed to radiate from mount them, to permeate the atmosphere of the place. There's something strangely attractive, even compelling about it. Hardly knowing why, the people began to come back to the monastery more frequently, to picnic, to play, to pray. They began to bring their friends to show them this place, and their friends would bring their friends And then it happened that some of the younger men who came to the monastery, they began to talk more and more with the old monks. After a while, one of them asked if he could join them. And then another. And another. And within a few years, the monastery once again became a thriving order. And thanks to the rabbi's gift, a vibrant center of light and spirituality in the realm. Let's pray.
Father, we all in here have a deep desire to behold disciples. And Father, one element of that, as we've been talking about this morning, is to live missionally. What does that look like? What does that mean? Father, we've heard a lot of stories. Father, it means going outside of our own comfort, to move outside the camp, to face all kinds of degradation and insult and even death for the name of Jesus, because it's worth it. Father God, going and living missionally and going outside the camp, it means maybe not being fully aware of the fruits of our labor, of, of being burnt in the scorching heat as we plant the seeds of your forest. Father God, living missionally might mean sharing Jesus with others, knowing that this is how your kingdom works, a person at a time sharing Jesus. Father, living missionally is so much greater than anything that we can do in ourselves. We follow the footsteps of Jesus who led the way outside the camp of comfort and familiarity and ease. We go to our own hill. We take up our own cross. We give our own sacrifices all for the name of Jesus who sanctified his people first. Father, as we leave these doors, I don't know what living missionary looks like for each person in here, but God, I pray that in this moment that they would know. They would know what it means to follow you outside the camp, to move towards need, not comfort. Father, give us whatever it is, give each of us that realization this morning. And we say this prayer in the name of our Savior Jesus, who all of this is for. Amen.